You're listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Welcome. The goal of TC Podcasts is to spread the knowledge and accumulated experience of global leaders, experts, and world-renowned specialists in financial supervision and regulation. In each episode, we'll delve into some of today's most pressing issues as it relates to financial supervision and regulation. The financial crisis, climate change, financial inclusion, fintech, and much more. Enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this Toronto Centre podcast. I'm Chin Hui Eng, Program Director. We have just published a TC note entitled Risk-Based Supervision, Some Practical Implementation Issues. And I am very pleased to have the author here today, Paul Wright, to talk to us about it. Paul is a veteran regulator and supervisor and a longtime program leader with Toronto Centre. Paul, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. Paul, you have authored many TC notes on risk-based supervision for Toronto Centre, and this note is the latest one. What is this TC note about, and why have you produced it now? Well, the first thing to say about it is that it's nothing very startling. There's no new departure from uh, what we've written before uh, in this note. It's just that we've noticed, as we do programmes and as we, uh, as, as we meet supervisors, a number of very common implementation issues uh, that come up again and again. And normally, once we've given people the principles of risk-based supervision, we encourage them to think about issues for themselves and supervisors should really think things through and devise their own solutions to problems as they arise. But these, these issues in this paper are so common and we've done quite a lot of thinking about them. We thought it would be helpful to share what we think is good practice in a number of common uh, areas of implementation. What are the main issues covered in this note? Well, there are actually, there are several of them. I'll just quickly run through them. Uh, So the first one is about calibration of ratings. One thing we've seen many times is a tendency to overrate assessments. And what I mean by that is people have a tendency in the early days of RBS to uh, rate too many inherent risks as high, for example, And when they're assessing controls and governance, uh, a tendency to rate too many of them as weak. And whereas those are, uh, it's perfectly reasonable to use those ratings where they're warranted, some people just do it a bit too much. And so we discuss uh, that and what we think is an appropriate calibration of ratings uh, that we can work with. The second issue is to do with controls and management. And this is an issue that a lot of supervisors struggle with. And it's the idea that If you have weak management, weak controls in a firm, these really are serious independent risk factors in themselves. And it's quite possible, for example, that you could rate a firm as having medium low or medium high inherent risks, but the weakness of the controls can actually mean that net risk is higher than inherent risk. And this is something people struggle with. So we we discuss that as well at some length. The third issue is on and off site work. And, you know, I've been doing Toronto programs now for about 11 years, and uh, I've, I've always been struck by how common it is for on and off site work to be separated and done by different teams. And we often struggle in the Toronto Centre really to see the rationale for that. But given that it's a reality and that it is these functions are divided um, in many organisations, we just set out some ideas for how they can work together to produce a good risk-based result. 
The fourth topic is projects, the treatment of projects. Now, you remember that one of the key parts of doing RBS, one of the first things we have to do when we're doing a risk-based assessment is to identify significant activities. And those are normally business lines, you know, like lending or general insurance or whatever. And a number of supervisors will say, well, yes, that's okay. We understand that. But this firm has also got a project, maybe to improve its IT, for instance, or, or its standards of documentation. And this project is so important and it's so pervasive throughout the organisation that we should probably treat that as a significant activity as well. And then they say, well, is that okay? Can we can we do that? And what we do here in this paper is to set out some of the issues. The answer, the short answer is, yes, it is okay to treat a project as a significant activity, but the bar for doing that should be quite high. Um, and there are a number of tests that you really need to apply before you do it. And we set those out. The fifth topic is how to deal with unsupervisable structures. And those are structures which are opaque or complex so that supervisors feel they just can't really get their arms around them and understand what they're doing or how they're managed. And groups like that are often cross-sectoral ones, so they may have banking insurance, securities, other fund management perhaps, and they're often cross-border ones as well, and we discuss the implications of those. We then talk about the independence of local boards. So many host supervisors will have subsidiaries of overseas entities in their jurisdiction and of course those those subsidiaries have to have their own governance arrangements their own boards and there's often a concern that the board is really too focused on the parent they're not really looking out for the interests of the subsidiary and therefore they're not sufficiently independent we talk about the issues there and then finally something which a lot of supervisors get very exercised about is upstreaming of profits. So again, if you're the host supervisor of a subsidiary, you may see that subsidiary upstreaming large amounts of revenue to the parent organisation. And a lot of host, host supervisors worry about whether that is really warranted or not. Um, and they get indignant about it too. They say, well, there's too much of the profit is being remitted to the home. What can we do about it? And we discuss that in some detail as well. So seven topics... Some of them related, but in some ways they're, they're not. They're just common implementation issues. Well, thank you for the run through of the main issues. And perhaps we can pick up on just a few of these in more detail. I think first, why have you chosen to focus on what you call unsupervisable structures? So this is a topic that's been around for a very long time. And in fact, there have been a number of high profile failures uh, which have come about because supervisors just didn't feel they could understand the risks in a group. Either they couldn't understand the business or they just couldn't see where the management and controls resided and they didn't feel they could have a proper dialogue about that. So this has been a problem pretty much for as long as we've had supervision and a serious problem. Now, as we say in the paper, there is a simplistic and trite answer to this problem, which is, don't, don't authorise unsupervisable structures in the first place. So when uh, you're confronted with an application for authorisation or for licensing, one of the questions that any supervisor or supervisory body should ask is, well, is it possible to supervise this firm do we under, or group? Do we understand exactly what it does, exactly how it's controlled? And if the answer to that is no, we don't fully understand it, 
or the structure is too complex or opaque, then don't authorize it in the first place. But I said that was a simplistic answer, uh, and it is, because many firms don't start out as being unsupervisable, but they become unsupervisable over time. Uh, and that may be because they merge with others, because their business or their structure uh, evolves. Sometimes, it must be said, firms uh, develop uh, deliberately opaque or complex structures, frankly, to, de to defeat supervisors. Now, most of them don't do that. In most cases, it's a, it's a sort of byproduct of other things that happen, but sometimes uh, they do. So uh, it's not enough, really, to say don't authorise them in the first place, because you may well authorise a firm or a group and then find that it becomes difficult, harder or impossible to supervise later on. And what we say in the paper, really, is there are two things. There are no easy answers to this. There are no easy answers to anything. But there are two things that you might consider. The first is that if this group is complex because it, it involves various, various sectors, so for example, if it's a bank and insurance and, super, and uh, securities firm, so if it's across several sectors, are the supervisors of those various entities communicating adequately? So if you have separate banking and insurance supervisors, for example, or separate securities supervisor, are you communicating among yourselves as effectively as you could and as you should? And that question also applies, of course, is the, if the group is a cross-border one. So if you have a group which is operating across national borders, do we have the appropriate colleges and the appropriate coordination mechanisms to make sure? So sometimes supervisors may feel that they don't have a sufficient overview of a group. And that problem can be remedied by getting together with other supervisors, other relevant supervisors, and communicating uh, more effectively. But then if you do go through that process and you say, well, yes, actually, we do have pretty good communication mechanisms. You know, we, we, we do know the other supervisors involved. We do have colleges. But, you know, we still don't really feel as though this group can be effectively supervised because... There are dark corners. We don't know what's going on in parts of the group. We don't know where the mind and management reside. Then you may have no choice but to say, well, I'm very sorry, group, but you're going to have to restructure. Uh, you, the board uh, and the senior management are going to have to oversee a process of restructuring because we simply are not willing to put up with or to continue to authorise, I should say, a structure which is not possible to supervise. Now, that won't be a very popular message. The senior management will resist it strongly. There may need to be lots of discussion about the form that the restructuring will take and what would be acceptable. But at the end of the day, the message is a very simple one, which is supervisors cannot countenance structures which they cannot supervise. And that may require some, as I say, some quite radical measures, which the firm won't always welcome, but they're necessary all the same. Oh, yes, indeed. Let's talk about another area that you highlighted, the independence of local boards. What are the issues and what is your advice? Uh, so again, this is another uh, very common issue. And let's just recap on what the issue is here. So again, imagine that you have a cross-border group and uh, I am the host supervisor uh, in a jurisdiction where there is a subsidiary. Now, the subsidiary, of course, is a legal entity in its own right. It therefore is required to have its own governance arrangements, its own board. Um, and very often, 
the members of that board in the host jurisdiction will be, to coin a phrase, they'll be parachuted in from the parent. So the parent will say, OK, we've got a number of very senior staff members from the parent organisation. We will uh, parachute those into the board of the subsidiary. Now, once they're in that role on the board of the subsidiary, they have a perfectly legitimate role in making sure that the strategy and the objectives of the parent are carried through to the subsidiary. So it's absolutely right that those board members should have a, an eye to the objectives and the strategy of the parent. But some supervisors worry, host supervisors worry, that often the entire focus is on the parent, and that there is insufficient focus on the activities of the subsidiary, which is, after all, an authorised entity in its own right, and therefore the board has a responsibility to oversee that subsidiary and to make sure that it's run, and particularly that its risks are managed appropriately. And it's getting that balance uh, right that is often the problem. And what we've proposed in the paper, and once again, let me emphasise that there are no easy answers here. This is not a panacea, but there are two things you might consider doing. The first one, very common, by the way, many supervisors do this already, is a regulatory response, which is to say that, OK, there must be at least two truly independent members of that subsidiary board. And these are members who are not parachuted in from the parent, but who are recruited from the local jurisdiction and who therefore can be expected to have a more independent perspective on the subsidiary uh, as opposed to the parent. So as I say, that's a regulatory response. It's a requirement. Many, many jurisdictions have that already. The other possible response is a supervisory one. And we offer in the paper some ideas for the kind of dialogue that supervisors could have with all of the members of that subsidiary board. So you as a supervisor are perfectly entitled to seek discussions with the board of that subsidiary. And you can ask them questions like, where do you see the conflicts as arising? When was, when was there last a conflict between the discussion about the parent and the discussion of the subsidiary? How did that conflict get dealt with? Uh, when was the last time that you as a board actually made a decision on the basis of what was in the interests of the subsidiary as opposed to the parent? So in other words, uh, uh, an open discussion based very often on open-ended questions about how the board of the subsidiary manages itself and deals with that potential conflict. Now, that kind of discussion was the one that we first described in an earlier TC note on corporate governance, which we published in January 2022. And in that, we said, these are the kinds of discussions you should have with boards. Uh, Open-ended questions, very important to interpret the answers correctly, uh, and so on. So really, this is just a continuation of that. When you're having a discussion with any board, whether it's at a subsidiary or a main board in your jurisdiction, there is a particular type of questioning that's appropriate, which will help you to understand whether the members of that board are effective uh, in their oversight of the entity concerned. Now, as I say, this is not a panacea. There are no easy answers here, but we hope that we provide some helpful guidance to host supervisors who are confronted with this problem. Uh, let's pick up now on a third issue, which is the upstreaming of profits, which, as you say, causes concern to many supervisors. Uh, yes, it really does. And I've, I've, heard this, I've heard about this so many times that uh, in, in programmes that I've done 
So the issue is this, that you have a uh, subsidiary, again, you may be the host supervisor of a subsidiary in your jurisdiction, and that each uh, year the subsidiary upstreams what you may see as an excessive or potentially excessive amount of income to the parent. And that may take the form as a straight, of a straightforward dividend, or it may be payment for some service which the parent provides. So you often see, for example, that the parent will provide IT services or some other kind of operational services to the subsidiary, and the payment is seen as a, a recompense for that. Now, we make a number of points in the paper. The first one is that, of course, parents have a perfect right to expect some income from subsidiaries. After all, a subsidiary represents an investment by the parent entity, uh, and therefore they are fully entitled to expect a dividend payment um, in return for that investment. But the question, of course, is whether these are uh, excessive and whether host supervisors should worry about that. And you won't be surprised to know that we take a rather risk-based approach to this. Several times when host supervisors have said to me that they are concerned about the scale of these payments, I have said, well, tell me what the risk is. I can understand that you might be indignant about this or upset about it in some way, but what actually is the problem? Now, there may be a problem, and we set some of those out in the notes. So, for example, if those payments are on a scale which could undermine the financial stability of the subsidiary, so if they're actually eroding the capital position of the subsidiary, or more likely eroding the ability of the subsidiary to generate capital through retained earnings, for example, then that would indeed be a worry, a legitimate supervisory concern. Similarly, if large payments are a sign of something else, such as basic weakness, financial weakness on the part of the group, which is relying on excessive payments from the subsidiary, for example, to, met, to meet debt repayments, that would be a concern as well. But it's important to ask that question, and it's quite possible that in some circumstances you may say, well, these payments look quite big to me as a host supervisor, but I can't actually see any detriment, I can't actually see any damage that they are doing. So indignant as I may be about them, uh, on a risk-based basis, they're not necessarily something that we need to worry about. So that's a judgment I think the host supervisor needs to make. And by the way, we do caution in the paper against second-guessing the size of payments. So, for example, supposing a parent provides IT services to a subsidiary and they make a payment for it, it's not a very sensible use of supervisor's time, really, to try to second-guess whether that payment for a service rendered is appropriate or not. I would advise uh, against that. And the, the final point I'd make about this is, of course, this is a legitimate subject for hosts to discuss with home supervisors. So if there's a college arrangement or some other kind of coordination, as there should be, then this would be a perfectly legitimate thing to raise. You know, by the way, we've noticed these payments looking rather large. Do they look large to you? Do they seem to be warranted? And so on. But it's one of those issues where it's easy to get quite emotional and quite concerned about it. And the advice is take a risk based view and see whether and why it really matters. Thank you, Sound, as advice as always. And uh, rounding off our discussion today, are there any other comments you would like to make about the note? 
Well, I think there are just two things I'd say. The first one is, obviously, we would quite like people to read it because it, it does represent a distillation of a lot of thought that we've given over the years to these common implementation issues. So it's, it's worth a look if you're in implementing risk-based supervision. I would be surprised if you don't come across at least some of these issues. And it, it's worth looking at uh, the kind of received wisdom that has developed over the years. But having said that... Um, I do want to emphasise that when you're implementing risk-based supervision, it's very important to grasp the principles of, of it and fundamentally how it works. And then, often as problems arise, we encourage supervisors to think through the issues for themselves. And it's important to do that because it helps you to think about risk-based supervision. It helps you to uh, take account of things in your jurisdiction that may be specific or in your financial system. So there's always a balance, really, between encouraging people to say, let's think through risk-based solutions ourselves and let's see what the Toronto Centre's got to say about some very common implementation issues. So we're very happy to provide this advice and guidance. We hope it'll be helpful to people. But in other cases, as I say, we would continue to encourage people to develop solutions for themselves. Thank you very much. And uh, do check out the TC note on our website, as Paul says, to use it as a basis to spur some thinking about the situation uh, in which you might want to apply this uh, and in your journey in risk-based supervision. I'm here today with Paul Wright, and you've been listening to a Toronto Centre podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.